Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good, good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those to have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you may have noticed this morning that we are having a family worship Sunday. And I greatly look forward to each and every one of these. So kids, thank you for being here. And I think it's only especially fitting given the text that we have in front of us this morning with Jesus welcoming little children into his very presence. So with confidence, I can say this morning, kids, we want you here and Jesus wants you here. So we're going to start off our morning by asking his blessing with a brief word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for the good gift of being able to gather to worship, and even that very intentional gift of having dear children in our midst. Uh, thank you for the example they are of simple, sincere faith that depends on you for everything. Would you help us, uh, even this morning, to in a fresh way, let go of the supposed self-sufficiency we imagine we have, so we can lay hold of the true treasures that Christ has for us. We ask you to do this through your word now. Speak through me, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We live at a time when people value confidence and self-sufficiency. If you go on YouTube, you'll get a random assortment of people who are suddenly experts on whatever topic it is they're talking about. And they have oh so much confidence about unclogging your kitchen drain, or how to walk your dog, or how to have silky smooth hair. Um, if you turn on your news, you'll see politicians that are utterly confident in their ability to fix everything that's wrong with the world, unlike all the other politicians that came before them, of course. Or if you go into the business world, you'll find business leaders and CEOs 
standing up with all the confidence of the resources and the plan they have to maximize shareholder value in their particular company. We live in a moment where people prize confidence and a sort of self-sufficiency. And there's no greater example of confidence and supposed self-sufficiency than a four-year-old with an electric razor. Uh, I went Googling uh, this week for stories of the, that unfortunate event that's happened in so many families' lives of kids that decide to cut their own hair. I came across one particular blog. It had 144 different entries with pictures and videos to match of kids that all decided to do the same thing. Uh, I'm going to cut my own hair because I'm totally able to do that, right? Well, all 144 of these entries, different families and different kids, they had one thing in common. They all ended terribly. <laughs> kids that had haircuts that looked like they were done with weed whackers. Uh, both kids and parents that were crying as a result. Because it turns out, self-confidence and a sense of self-sufficiency is not enough for things to turn out well. Oh, well, that's certainly true in the world we live in, haircuts to CEOs alike. But it's even more true in the spiritual world. Self-sufficiency can be one of the greatest barriers anyone has when it comes to a true living relationship with God. And this morning, Jesus will go even further than that. And he'll say, it's the very thing that can keep true treasures away from your soul. Because what God highly values is instead something else. Simple, sincere faith. The sort of thing you see when you stop and look at the example of a child. Now that's what we'll see this morning in this set of contrasts that Luke puts in front of us. Uh, with the teaching of Jesus and two very different types of people. One that's self-sufficient and seemingly the top of the pecking order socially. And the other, the smallest among us, most dependent on their parents for everything. And all of this will be one main point, and it's this, that only those who come to God with simple, sincere faith will find true riches in the kingdom of God. Only those who come to God with simple, sincere faith will find true riches in the kingdom of God. And we'll see that in two sections, following the two different divisions of these two contrasts. Uh, first in 15 through 17, we'll see the need for dependent faith. Dependent faith. And then in 18 through 30, we'll see what is truly worth valuing in true riches. True riches. Let's begin that first section, 15 through 17. What God requires Dependent faith. Now, if you're joining us uh, this Sunday in the midst of our study through Luke's gospel, uh, Luke has been in the midst of showing us uh, a series of contrasts. Last week we heard about someone that everyone would have assumed would have been the one with the inside track with God. That was a Pharisee. Uh, somebody who kept all the rules and had a visible sort of righteousness who stood before God with head held high. And on the other hand, there was someone that no one would have assumed that God would want to hear from. 
And that was a lowly, sinful tax collector. But the surprise of that text last week was that God welcomed the humble, contrite sinner rather than the puffed up, prideful, supposedly self-righteous Pharisee. Well, this morning, that sort of contrast continues, uh, this time with the unexpected person are the smallest among us, a group of children. We're told in verse 15, they were bringing even infants to him, that's Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now imagine the scene for a second. Jesus is this itinerant preacher. He's going around. His popularity is at an all-time high. He's on his way toward Jerusalem and having all these little pit stops along the way. And then wherever he was, word got out. Jesus is in town. And another word got out as well. Jesus is in town and he loves kids. Now, I don't know how Jesus got that reputation. Um, Surely it's because he really does love kids. But somehow the other people knew that if they brought their kids to Jesus, that he would welcome them. Uh, But there was a boogeyman in the story. Did you notice that? His disciples are there. And they're like the hall monitors, trying to stop anyone from having any fun. They're saying, no way, Jose. You cannot bring your kids to see Jesus. That strikes us as strange. Uh, Because we live in a moment where being seen as being kind and welcoming to kids is something of high value. I mean, politicians are known for kissing babies for a reason, right? Uh, But back then, kids were thought of as more of a nuisance. Uh, That is until they were grown. Uh, So if you were a powerful teacher of some sort, chances are you wanted the room free of kids, because that meant free of distractions, so the adults can be going about their serious work with God. Uh, the deep spiritual matters. But Jesus has a totally different attitude about kids. Uh, While the disciples are harshly rebuking the parents, bringing them in, Jesus is saying, don't do any such thing. Uh, It gives us uh, reasons why. Those reasons are what get extremely surprising. Verse 16, but Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. There have been Bible students down through the years that have taken that verse and have assumed it is teaching that children should be baptized and become members of the kingdom of God by that action from their very moments when they were born. I think that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. Uh, Jesus is saying something that is, I think, far more profound. Uh, Jesus welcomes kids. Uh, Kids, this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus wants you to know that you can draw close to him. But that is because you kids are actually a part of a larger group. That is a group of people that understand that they are totally dependent upon God. Uh, Think about what it means to be a child. An infant's born, and an infant has absolutely no ability to fend for itself. It requires its parents to feed it, clothe it, change it, and that process goes on for literally years. Uh, Kids, no matter how old you are, there are certain things that you can do at this point. Uh, There was a point at some point in your past 
maybe not even very far in your past, where your parents had to do all those things for you. That's part of growing up. You go from being able to do literally nothing to one day being able to be somewhat able to fend for yourself and be independent. Well, Jesus is saying that if you look at the example of the dependence of a child, you could see spiritually the sort of dependence that is required of anyone that will come to be a part of the kingdom of God. If we think that we are self-sufficient, uh, we can do it for ourselves. We don't need anyone's help. Then our hearts will have no need for the very thing that God longs to offer us. Gifts of his grace. That dependence is matched with a second attribute. Uh, that's what we see there in verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Uh, matched with dependence <clears throat> is trust. Uh, kids, there's something that you are really good at. I can say this without knowing you specifically. Um, you are good at receiving gifts. <laughs> kids are great at this, right? Uh, I remember as Lillian was growing up, uh, she figured out really quickly that receiving presents was a really good thing. Uh, when she was about two, I think, um, there was one particular Christmas where she had this big load of presents, and she had figured out that she was supposed to open up the wrapping paper, and that she was supposed to be excited about what was inside. Now, she didn't know what it actually was that was inside, or what she was even supposed to say, but she had learned this phrase. So she'd open up the presents, and then in her little two-year-old voice, she would say, oh, it's just what I always wanted. <laughs> followed by, what is it? <laughs> now, why can kids have that sort of sincere reaction to any sort of gift they're given? Well, it's because they haven't grown up enough to be jaded. They haven't gotten cynical yet. They can have this wonderful sincerity to just open their hands and receive. And trust that whatever it is that their parents or their grandparents or their aunts or their uncles are going to give them, it's going to be something that's good. Well, that's Jesus' point. How does God want you to approach him? With a simple, sincere faith that's ready to receive a good gift. Now, kids, surely one of the things that Jesus wants you to hear this morning is that you don't have to wait till you're a certain age in order to receive this good gift from God. Uh, even right now, you can start to learn to trust God. Uh, kids, maybe this week you're going to have something happen to you that's going to be scary. You're not sure what you're supposed to do. You can pray to Jesus and ask him, Jesus, would you help me? I'm scared about this thing. Would you help me to... Know that I can trust you. If you do that now, as you grow up, it'll be easier and easier for you to have that simple sort of trust that you'll need to receive the most important gift from God. And that most important gift, of course, is to know that you'll be with God forever in heaven. That you, that you in your very soul, that you have been saved by Jesus. Uh, kids, no matter how much you understand now, you can even start asking your parents about that. 
How can I know I'll be saved? How can I know I'll go to heaven when my life's over? Uh, Jesus welcomes you, no matter what age you are. So would you learn to trust him even right now? Now, to us adults, I think that there is uh, a lesson here for us to learn about the value of having children around us to help us on our journey of faith and even worship of Christ. Uh, I love the way we as a church have come to have this form. There are once a month uh, family worship Sundays and summers when we do this for several months. Um, one of the reasons why I think this is so valuable is because of texts like this. It seems like God has something intentionally for us when we have our kids with us. When we look to them, we see an example of simple, sincere faith and it encourages us. And when they look to us, they see some of what a grown-up faith looks like. What maturity as someone who followed Jesus actually is like in the day-to-day -day worshiping and acting as a disciple of Jesus. So parents, please bring your kids to, to, to church on Sunday, uh, especially our family worship Sundays. To, uh, we, we love it when they're here. Even if that means we have to deal with some extra wiggles and giggles, we want it. So bring them. And to all of us here, whether you have kids or not, let's not fall into that ditch that Jesus' disciples are falling into. Let's not think of the kids as some sort of barrier to us having an encounter with Jesus. Uh, let's actually see them as a wonderfully given gift to help us know what simple, sincere faith looks like. But I think the most pressing question that Jesus wants us to ask this morning is for each and every one of us to ask, is this the sort of way I approach God? Am I coming to him with simple, sincere faith, like a child expecting to receive the best of all gifts? Or am I being deluded by my heart's self-sufficiency? Well, that's what the second point this morning shows us as we discover what true riches really are in verses 18 through 30. Uh, this time we come to the other half of the contrast, a very different person, uh, someone who is at the top of the pecking order socially, who everyone would assume would be someone who is pure of heart by virtue of his prosperity and prominence. A man who's described as a ruler. Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now you need to know that a ruler is someone of some prominence. We're not told exactly what sort of ruler. He could be anything from some sort of religious figure like a, uh, the head person in a, a local synagogue or more likely in this case, probably some sort of prominent businessman, someone with means. And back then, there was an assumption that if you were prosperous, that also meant that you must be pure in heart. Because after all, riches were a blessing that God bestows upon people, which are, were thought of as some sort of a reward that God would give for the especially spiritual. And this man comes to Jesus seemingly asking the right sort of question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Another way you could say that, how do, how do I know that one day I'm gonna be welcomed into heaven? 
But as is often the case with Jesus, he, he doesn't answer people's questions directly. He sees through the questions, even through the person, to the real need of their hearts, which is why he responds in a way that surely was unexpected. Verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, Jesus detects more than a little bit of flattery from a man who knows how to get someone on his good side to make friends. He calls him good teacher. That would have been a way that you could have spoken in reverence toward a teacher in the day. But Jesus knows that there's also another level where his words speak of something far deeper than he realized. Uh, Jesus points out, according to the Bible, there's not a single person that could be described as, as good, that is, except for God alone. The Bible teaches that not a single one of us is righteous based on our own merit, our own efforts to live a moral, upstanding life before God. Each of us are sinners in one way or the other. But God, on the other hand, is perfect. He has no sin. He never has a bad day and messes up in anger. He always does what is right. His heart is 100% pure. So whether he realized it or not, as this ruler asked Jesus this question, even in the way he addressed him, he asked a far deeper question. Is Jesus really good? Well, this is one of the more ironic parts in Luke's gospel, because if the ruler knew who he was talking to, he would know the answer to that question. Uh, Jesus is good because Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus is God the Son, come in human flesh, truly God and truly man, and 100% free of all sin. Jesus uses this little theological jujitsu move to knock the, the ruler on his heels, and then continues the conversation where he expected it in verse 20. Uh, Jesus gives him a sort of test of his goodness. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Uh, Jesus lifts off, lifts off five of the Ten Commandments. Um, numbers four through nine. To a Jew in that day, there would have been no argument. This is what God requires of us. This is his holy law. Uh, these commandments and the implications of them are what it is to live a good life and to be a good person. Well, the ruler responds. Sorry, I lost my place there. Uh, all the, verse 21, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. There's no indication that he thinks that he's blowing smoke at Jesus. He thinks that he has lived up to the implications of each of these commandments. Now, I think with some, some time and reflection, uh, it would not be hard to show that however much this ruler had tried to live out these commandments of God, that there would be many areas in his life where he had fallen short. Because that's the case for all of us. Uh, even with our most sincere efforts to keep God's commandments, our hearts are still shot through with sin. And it's very easy to detect them if you just come alongside and look close enough. 
But Jesus, for his part, doesn't zero in on any of those commandments, those five he listed off, that the young man claimed he kept. Instead, he points his attention to one commandment that Jesus didn't list. Kids are going to need your help here. You have permission to shout out the answer if you think you know it, okay? Um, Jesus listed off commandments five through nine. I want to know, what is the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. Bingo. Thank you, Lillian. You shall not covet. Coveting. The desire of the heart for money, and more importantly, for the things it brings. That the desire that looks to all the things you can get in this world. Things that maybe you could have one day. Things that someone else has that you wish you could have. The Apostle Paul told us that coveting is really a form of idolatry. It's making money and the things it brings into your God. Jesus looks through the question and through the man to the heart. And he realizes this ruler's real problem. And so he gives him a challenge designed to, re to reveal the true nature of his heart. Look what he says in verse 23, uh, sorry, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus gives a command that frankly, on the surface, seems too much. He tells him, go take all of your possessions, sell every one of them, give all that money away, and then and only then you are ready to come and follow after me. Oh, why would Jesus do that? God's law has not required that anyone give up all personal property. God has not told us that having wealth is inherently sinful. Isn't what Jesus is telling this man to do simply too much? It would be, that is, unless what Jesus was doing was tailored specifically to the ditch that this man's soul had fallen into. Now, this is a loving challenge designed to shock the soul, to help someone that has been mastered by his money, to let go of it so he can receive something that's far better. Money can have a terrible sort of power over your heart. Elizabeth Elliot is quoted as saying, money ha has a terrible power of the human heart when it's loved. There's no thing that more commonly keeps people from coming and being disciples of Jesus than the love of money and the things it brings. It's the reason why Jesus has been coming back to this same topic again and again in Luke's gospel. It's not because he's cruel. It's because he loves us. And he knows what our hearts need to let go of if we are to lay, lay hold of something far greater. And what's surely one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible, we get the reaction of the ruler to this. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He counted the cost of what it took to come follow Jesus. And he said, 
The price is simply too high. And as a result, he missed out on the greatest treasure a heart can ever find. He did it to hold on to some pitiful pennies that are of no lasting value. Jesus takes the occasion to turn and pivot from talking to the ruler to start speaking to his disciples. Uh, Jesus, verse 24, seeing that he had become sad, said, this is to his disciples now, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus says that having a lot of money is actually a hindrance spiritually. It makes things harder on you. Because the hold that money can have on your soul makes it so hard to have simple, sincere faith. To receive true riches from God. Uh, Jesus uses an analogy there of a camel going through the eye of a needle for how hard it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Uh, There have been some very creative interpretations for this over the years. Uh, One of the popular ones is there's a gate called the eye of the needle that was low that a camel couldn't climb under unless it got down on its knees. Um, There's no evidence to back that up, as inventive as it is. Uh, Other people thought it might refer to a type of rope that sounds like the word camel. Um, But that's to miss the whole point of this. It's meant to be an absurdity. To be an example so outlandish that you can't help but see his point. It'd be like saying, it's harder for a rich person to get into heaven than it is for you to get a Mack truck through a revolving door into your apartment building. It's just, there's just no way it's going to happen. Now, that poses a problem, of course. Because what is Jesus actually saying here? Is Jesus saying that you have to be poor in order to get into heaven? That there'll be no rich people in the kingdom of God? Now, I think the best way to understand this is that Jesus is saying that the love of money, uh, that those who see their wealth as a sort of self-sufficiency of soul, that they will find it impossible to receive what they truly need from God. And that is the treasures of the kingdom itself. See, if you're trusting in your wealth and money and the things it brings, there'll be no room in your heart for the thing that you need most. And that is the gift of salvation that only God can give you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, this is the, the most basic message of Christianity. That none of us have any sort of ability to earn our way into a relationship with God. Uh, It doesn't matter how much money we give away or how many good deeds we try and do. That all of us have in some way sinned against God. And that sin is no small offense. The Bible teaches that the wages of any sin is death. Which means that what we deserve from God is not to receive a reward or a gift. But we deserve the just penalty for our sins. That, that is a forever, away for, a, a forever life away from him under his punishment. But the good news that the Bible teaches outweighs the bad. Is that while we could never earn it, that if we let go of all of our delusions of self-sufficiency, if we stop trying to earn our way into a relationship with God, that he's already done everything needed to give us a gift that we could have never deserved. A gift of forgiveness 
and salvation and a relationship of love with God that starts now and goes on and on forever. Uh, for that to happen, though, friend, you must renounce. Renounce everything. Uh, you must renounce all of the sins that you know of in your heart. And you must even renounce the things that you've been trusting in to make you a good person. Those riches that you thought have made your soul worthy. But if you let go of those things and come to Jesus with a simple, sincere faith, you'll find the gates of heaven open wide. You'll find each and every one of your sins wiped away by the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. And you'll find an eternal life with God given to you right now that goes on and on and gets better and better off into eternity. Now, friend, if you don't know how to do that or maybe you have questions about what all that means, uh, my invitation to you is just find anyone who's a Christian and ask them, what does it mean for me, to, like the preacher said, to know that I've been saved? I, I'm sure they'd be delighted to answer how you can do that yourself. Now, you may be asking, well, for those of us who are Christians this morning, what does this teaching have to do with us? Well, that seems to be the question that the disciples had in that moment. They said, then who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus said, what's pos uh, 26, what's, um, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. The implication being, what's there for us, Jesus? Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, oh yes, you have left so much to follow me. Uh, they had left businesses and families and loved ones and hometowns. Uh, they left behind reputations all in the hope of finding something better with Jesus. So Jesus assured them with a set of precious promises. However, however much you've given up, you will receive far more. Uh, you will receive things right here in the here and now, in the family of God. And you'll receive even greater treasures in the kingdom of God to come. Brothers and sisters, this is what you need to hear this morning. That however much you give up in your walk with Jesus, however hard it is to let go of your hard-earned money, however difficult it is to forsake those earthly attachments that you're so attracted to, however many times you get rejected by people socially because you identify as a Christian and are open about it and consistent about it, or whatever sacrifice you make to follow Jesus on the road to discipleship, what you receive is so much greater. Uh, you receive things in the here and now in the family of God. You receive brothers and sisters and spiritual parents that you didn't even know you needed. And yet who God has graciously put in your life to encourage you and help you on this walk of faith. And you receive the greatest gift of all, the treasure of heaven. Jesus himself, the one who's better than all the gold and riches you can find, 
the true satisfaction for your soul. You, you already know how he can provide that which you need here and now. You've experienced it in part. But the promise, is, the promise here is that one day, when he returns or he brings you home, the gates of heaven will be open wide and you'll be able to see the true measure of the riches that have been yours this whole time. No matter how much you've given up, what you get is so, so much greater. And dear brothers and sisters, it's not a thing of this, not an inch of it, not a cent of it. It's because of what you've done. It's all that you receive through simple, sincere faith. Like a kid holding out his arms, eager to receive a good gift from your good heavenly father. Uh, I heard a story from someone who goes to our church and gave me permission to tell this of how one little girl found that good gift at a young age. 11-year-old girl, she was part of a family that did not regularly go to church. Uh, but one of her friends invited her, and she said she wanted to go. And she, peer pre she pressured her parents until they let her. So on Easter Sunday, she went to church with a different family and heard the message of the gospel of Jesus preached. Uh, that Sunday, she put her trust in Jesus. She found him to be her heart's greatest treasure. And with simple, sincere faith, she relied on him to provide everything she needed for forgiveness and eternal life with God. Well, after that, something amazing started happening because Sunday after Sunday, she wanted to go to church, but her parents didn't. So she kept asking them, would you take me to church? Would you take me to church? Would you take me to church? Finally, it just became logistically easier if they went with her to church. And wouldn't you know it, in due time, they came to faith as well. They became prominent members of that church, Sunday school teachers and people that were involved serving within the church. And that little girl herself grew up into a woman who followed Jesus for the vast majority of her life. One day, the Lord granted her children, who she introduced to Jesus. And the woman who told me that story was one more generation after that, a legacy of faith that had been passed down from one generation to the other, all starting with one simple, sincere 11-year-old girl taking up the invitation of Jesus to come draw near and find the riches of the kingdom of God opened wide. Brothers and sisters, don't imagine that your self-sufficiency gives you standing with God. Depend on God with simple, sincere faith and find that which is truly valuable. The gates of heaven open wide in the man, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we thank you for doing everything that was required for us to be saved. Thank you for not requiring of us that which would be impossible, that we could free ourselves from the shackles of our sins or that we could somehow outweigh the bad we've done with our good. 
Uh, thank you for doing the impossible by the power of your blood, by giving your life as a sacrifice for sinners like us. So we could merely hold out our hands with simple, sincere faith, trusting you to give us the best gift of all. Uh, Jesus, now as we sing this next song, would you help us to have that sort of childlike faith that responds with joy at what we have received? Thank you, Jesus. We praise you now in your mighty name. Amen.